From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. You're listening to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University and its campuses are situated in the Great Black Swamp and the Lower Great Lakes region. This land is the homeland of the Wyandot, Kickapoo, Miami, Potawatomi, Ottawa, and multiple other indigenous tribal nations present and past who are forcibly removed to and from the area. We recognize these historical and contemporary ties in our efforts toward decolonizing history, and we thank the indigenous individuals and communities who've been living and working on this land from time immemorial. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Angela Algren, who is a spring 2023 ICS faculty fellow. Angela teaches theater history and performance studies in the Department of Theater, Film, and Dance, and serves as graduate coordinator for the MA and PhD programs in theater. Her fellowship project is Places Please, Stage Managers, Gender, and Invisible Labor. Thanks for joining me today, Angie. Well, thanks for having me. You are now an associate professor in theater and film. What did your particular academic journey look like to get you to this point and to this particular project? Can you give us some of the like major turns for you in your you know, career? When I went to college, I went to college at Augsburg College in Minneapolis, which is now Augsburg University. And it was a very small program, and I was a stage manager. I stage managed a couple of shows while I was there. I think like a lot of the people that I've interviewed for this project, I was someone who really loved being a part of theater, but also wasn't wasn't really wanting to be on stage and that kind of thing. And so that led to a couple of years post-graduation doing some stage management work while also waiting tables and doing, you know, those other kinds of post-college jobs. And... Eventually, I started working with Theater Moo in Minneapolis, which is an Asian American theater company. And there started to be this nexus for me of working with them as a stage manager. And then uh, after a couple of years, I also went back to do my master's in English at University of Minnesota. And as it happened, as I was part of this Asian American theater company, Josephine Lee, who is an Asian Americanist at, at Minnesota, was also there and she was my advisor. And so I, I think through her and a couple of other Asian American faculty, I sort of started to build a kind of larger interest in Asian American performance, which also was involved in me being a Tycho performer, which was the subject of my first book. So this is all very complicated, but they're sort of knit together in a way. And when I did, I did my PhD at the University of Texas, at Austin, and that was in performance as public practice, so really a theater history performance studies program. And yeah, my dissertation work was on Tycho performance, which was very connected to Asian American performance. And so, you know, I never really thought about writing about stage management until really until I was already a faculty member in one of my first jobs where I, I started to kind of see that role from a different perspective as a faculty member concerned about how students labor and, you know, time was being used. And so, you know, I start. it just started as an inkling, really thinking about like, hmm, that could be a project and then realizing nobody has really now at this point, a few people have written about stage management, but there's not like a big 
body of work on it. And so, yeah, over time, it just started to make sense to me. At a certain point, my first book was interview-based. I, I interviewed living taiko players, most of whom I knew. And after that was done, I thought, oh, I'll never do an interview-based project again. It's so much work. It's so much emotional, you know, stuff. But after working on some archival projects, and I think also really after the pandemic, being forced into isolation so much, I, when I really started to have time to focus on a new project, I thought, yeah, I really want to be talking to people. And so that, and that has been really energizing. So you've mentioned that you have degrees in theater and English and performance studies. How do you think about the relationship between these different disciplines in your research and teaching? They're connected, of course, in the sense that so many of the theoretical frameworks that I look to are so, like, borrow so much back and forth between English literary criticism and dramatic criticism, but there are also some distinct differences. I think that, strangely, in some ways, because I I guess it would make sense that having been an English major and being a, a voracious reader and, you know, that I might teach a lot of plays. And I actually don't. Like, I really find myself much more interested now in teaching plays that are not text-based or looking at aspects of performance that don't necessarily, sometimes they do, but are not necessarily tied to the literary. So, so for me, I think that a lot of the reference points we have are similar between literary studies and performance studies. I think I find myself just in terms of what is stimulating to me intellectually and creatively is is moving toward looking at things that are not necessarily text-based, even though I myself write a lot and read a lot in my personal life. Angie, will you describe for us the research you've been working on this year during your ICS faculty fellowship and maybe talk a little bit about the ways it is similar to or different from kind of the interview practices you did for your previous Tycho drumming book. I knew from the beginning that I wanted it to be ethnographic and really largely interview based because especially there's not a there's not like one sole site that I'm going to travel to and spend a kind of deep amount of time with individuals but so I set up the project especially this year I had a faculty improvement leave in the fall and the ICS in the spring so it was really a wonderful opportunity to kind of focus on different phases of this project as I as I really get to dive into the actual interviewing process. So I set it up so that I would be able to interview a range of stage managers. So I, I didn't want to narrow my focus too early. I think that I will definitely need to, as I develop the actual written portions of whatever, ha- you know, or various ways that I might deliver this research in the end that I will need to, to focus. But I wanted to make sure that I was not making too many assumptions right off the bat about whether people are currently working as stage managers, whether they're in a union or not in a union in New York or in another city. I really wanted to talk to as many people as I could really to understand what their concerns are. I didn't want to lead too much with what my ideas about what stage management is, because my own experience of being a stage manager is so long ago, really. And it was so brief compared to, you know, I'm talking to people who've been doing this for 25 or 30 years in much bigger, more complicated systems than I was ever a part of. And so at this point, I, I, my, my focus in some ways is really on gathering preliminary information to really understand better what, what I am interested in exploring and really also what stage managers are interested in, in having 
explored because I think this is one thing I want to continue with the research that that is maybe similar to my earlier project on Tycho is that I want there to be some degree of reciprocity in this work that I'm not just using this as a launching pad for my own intellectual advancement, but that I'm really looking to the people that I am, you know, talking to and spending time with to help articulate what, you know, what's important to them, because what really, they're going to be the audience for this work as well, I hope. You, in your title, you, you allude to kind of the gendered labor. What is the current, you know, breakdown of who are Who's the typical stage manager and what are some of the kind of common threads in that role from the folks you've talked to? Yeah. So, of course, my sample is still small, but there there's a really good resource that's tracking kind of bigger numbers on stage management through Elon University. I've been kind of looking at their reports to to kind of call together these numbers. And so in a broad sense, women identified folks make up about 65 to 70 percent of stage managers in, in most year, recent years, but that that number is not necessarily consistent across cities or types of theater. So it seems to be the case that on Broadway, there's a, a the balance is more toward male stage managers. And so so there's some variation there, but it does really seem to be the case that especially maybe since the late 20th century, I'm guessing, is that stage management has become a role that many women fill and that is also in manuals and textbooks for stage management, often really described in in gendered terms, that it is a more servant, I don't want to say servant, but it is a, is a, a role that serves the director or a role that is seen as having kind of motherly or caretaking qualities, whether that is taking care of the director or the cast or the show itself in very different ways than how directors are framed, which, you know, and directing is still by and large a very male dominated field. And there's a sort of the idea of the sort of artistic genius that the stage manager is there to serve, which in many cases, I think stage managers do want to serve the story. It's not that they're, you know, it's not that they're like adamantly not wanting to bring their support to the show, of course, but that they, I think the folks that I've talked to, many of them have said to me that they, they work for the show. They serve the story. They serve the artistic product and the process. And I think that that may be a way of, you know, kind of acknowledging that there is this pervasive sense that the stage manager has a role that is often framed as serving someone. And I think it's, it's, you know, a lot of the folks I'm talking to are really thinking about how they are part of the team, how they're part of a collaborative process, whose goal is to put on theater. You also have talked about kind of the working conditions. Can you talk a little bit about folks who don't know, like what do stage managers do and what are some of the maybe challenges to that work? Yeah, so it can vary a lot, but I, I, I will just start with a kind of maybe looking at my own experience because I worked for companies that at the time were quite small and did not have a large budget. So when I was a stage manager, stage managing for Theater Moo in the late 90s and early 2000s, I got to the rehearsal space. I swept the floor. I made sure that there was a the, a table set up for me and the director to sit at. I would have 
you know, if there were copies, changes to a script, we were often doing new plays. So making sure that copies were made, making sure that, you know, I would sit in rehearsal and take down blocking in pencil and make sure that there was basically keeping a record of what happened at rehearsal. And then when you move into the, when you move into tech, the stage manager kind of shifts to a little bit more I don't know, supervisory roles, because you are going to be the one who's going to be backstage or in a tech booth calling all of the light cues and the sound cues and communicating with people backstage. So so this is kind of the moment that the stage manager maybe takes a little bit more ownership of the process. And, and also, of course, making sure that the designers are getting what they need out of the process. And so once you're in that kind of running a show mode, you're the person who gets there the earliest, make sure everything is, all of the props are set where they need to be backstage, making sure everyone is, all the actors have checked in, running a sound check, running a light check, run, you know, kind of coordinating with the front of house. So you're you're really there to make sure everything just happens the way it is supposed to happen, calling places, and then of course troubleshooting. And so stage management can you know, in some places where they have a lot of a lot more resources, there might be a stage management team where there's one person and there's assistants or, or people have kind of the areas of backstage that they're responsible for. So, so you know, and a lot of folks that I've talked to, too, it's like it can always it can be things like making coffee. It can be things like I remember when I took a stage management class. I, I don't even think we have a, had a stage management class, but my my mentor in college would get us set up when we started stage managing we'd have like a little box and in that box you'd have band-aids paper clips pencils erasers anything that that someone might need at any moment your emergency kit basically right you want to be the person who's like oh a problem happened i have this from my magical bag (laughs) you know yeah you you've talked a little bit about kind of the the stage director and sort of that kind of auteur attitude around the director and the stage manager. Are there other key figures that the stage manager is really closely interfacing with? Yes, I would say that most of the stage managers I've talked to have talked about being the sort of the hub or the funnel or really they're kind of this linchpin that the director is someone they're with a lot of the time during rehearsal, but they're also probably coordinating with the designers or possibly if you're in a larger theater the the person who is running the costume shop or the scene shop so that anything that happens in rehearsal like a need that arises that has to do with the set or has to do with a costume or any other kind of technical thing that the stage manager is that liaison between the the kind of heads of all those departments it also i think if you're you know, and I, I don't speak from direct experience here, but from the people I've talked to who have worked on Broadway or in big touring shows, then they become also involved in working with producers and kind of, you know, so so they, they are really that, that hub. With the stage manager in particular being such a kind of invisible role to the audience, right? I mean, the director is invisible too, and yet we we do have that sort of, in film as well, the sort of culture of name recognition, a photo and a bio in ways that, you know, stage managers are often unsung. How do you think that plays into the kind of gendered and other kinds of power dynamics that you're seeing in your conversations with stage managers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of stage managers don't necessarily want to be in the spotlight, at least not to the audience or the or the public. 
But I think it is clear that they, of course, want to be recognized. I shouldn't say recognized, but, you know, they know that they're very much a part of the production. And so just to get credit where credit is due, for one thing. So I think the ways that it gets complicated, like one person that I talked to said, you know, said that, well, especially if you're working on in commercial theater where the goal is to really make money, a stage manager has a harder time negotiating for a better contract or really putting themselves out there in a way because a stage manager's name is not going to sell a ticket in the same way that, you know, Audra McDonald will. <laughs> so I think that can be tricky. So I think they, they also have to be very deliberate about how they build, how they make connections in order to expand their careers and, and secure work. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. If you are passionate about Big Ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Angela Algren, a spring 2023 ICS faculty fellow from the Department of Theater, Film, and Dance. Angie, your project brings together the disciplines of labor studies with performance studies, and you've talked a bit already about labor issues. Can you talk about how that comes into play with this project? Because that sounds like that is a new dimension compared to perhaps the Tycho work that you've done before. How are you thinking about this project bringing those those conversations together? Yeah, it's definitely new for me. The field of labor studies, broadly speaking, is a new area for me. Of course, I've had some experience with Marxist theory and, you know, through all of my work, but there is a little connection between the Tycho work and why I wanted to start thinking about labor, which was there was a a part of one of my chapters in the Tycho book where I talk about how, especially the Asian American performers, when they would go out and do performances especially ones that we called outreach performances, right? It's kind of small performances in maybe rural areas or things like that, that often they would find themselves in kind of backstage or offstage situations where they would need to answer questions about being Asian American or kind of come up against some assumptions about being Asian American that really actually made them uncomfortable or, or even angry but because they felt they were on the job, they would need to smile and you know, be really friendly about it in ways that kind of maybe rubbed up against how they really, in their minds, wanted to respond. And and so I, when I worked on that, I kind of turned to the work of Arlie Hochschild, who's an ethnographer who wrote about flight attendants. And, and she thought about it in terms of what she calls emotional labor, which is about having to use part of your emotional selves to create a positive response in the people that you're working with. And so she's really thinking about it in a kind of customer facing way. And in some ways that was true of the performers that I was writing about. With stage managers, I, I don't, you know, it's not so much that they are working in a public facing role. It's actually they're they're not. But at the same time, a lot of them describe the ways in which they set the tone for a rehearsal room or that they are often in situations where they need to use their emotions to create a different feeling that may or may not kind of rub up against their own, you know, what they're really thinking too. We all do this, of course. That was one of the sparks that I, that kind of reaches between those two projects. 
And so, you know, a lot of labor studies in what I have started to read so far really focuses on bigger labor movements are often is centered around unions appropriately, right? Like this is Kristen Essen, who is one of my colleagues in the field, has written a great book called Working Backstage in which a lot of that book focuses on IATSE, which is a backstage workers union. And in particular, she focused on the, the New York chapter. And it's, it's clear that for those workers, being part of the union is very important. And for a lot of them, it goes back generations. So it's, you know, it's central to them in ways that I think for stage managers, it's, it's not. It's not that they are part of a union for actors, actors' equity when they join unions. And they, they need to abide by the union handbook. And often the stage managers also need to be the person who enforces the handbook. So they are in this kind of strange position. The union is definitely part of their story. It's like part of the larger landscape, but it's not, I think, part of a big, a big labor story in the same way that some of the other labor studies and theater studies that have to do with labor have been told. Right. And isn't that in part because on in smaller productions, they might be the only one in that role, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas like when we think of unions, we tend to think of like, oh, all of the other people standing with you and you may be a union member, but you're, if you're the only stage manager on a show or with the theater company, that's a very different relationship to labor. Right, right. It's it's the the collective for them is certainly dispersed for for a lot of people and and also for a lot of stage managers they're just not part of the union and this stuff is changing now because actors equity just very recently changed a rule so that anyone can join so the, the the sort of complicated rules for joining the union are really shifting so we're actually at a moment where it's too soon for me to even think you know say anything about that right now but I think, you know, yeah, for a lot of people in theater, and this is true for performers and stage managers, is that you may be in a city where it just doesn't make sense to join a union. It, it might limit the number of jobs you're going to get or, yeah. So I think I think a lot of the people that, I, that I've talked to are, have a, you know, not combative relationship, but just a kind of, yeah, we have, it's there. We have to, you know, we have to sort of work with it. But it, it doesn't kind of form the center of the story so far. So in your interviews and, you know, what are the kinds of questions you're interested in asking them about their working conditions and about kind of the, the both the emotional, the aesthetic and the organizational labor that they are providing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm I'm really uh, trying to ask questions that are focused on. On description. So I'm, I'm asking them to talk about how they got into stage management. What, How do they think about their role or describe it? What kind of mentorship do they receive? What do they talk about with other stage managers? You know, what are what are the things that that come up when you're having a beer after work? And then I also am asking, you know, are there gendered or other kinds of hierarchies that you navigate in your every, you know, day to day work? And so I, I'm trying to leave them as open-ended as possible, but also really, I also want to ask them in a way to theorize with me. So I'm asking, well, why do you think there are so many women stage managers? And people usually do, have, you know, there, none of us, of course, myself included, have a, a concrete answer to that. But I think there's a lot of interesting theories about why that might happen and and the interviews with asking about things that they hope might change or especially how have recent, you know, the pandemic is inevitably part of that conversation, even if I, and I didn't even ask a specific question about it, but it's like part of everyone's story. But also, 
you know, things like movements for gender and racial equality, stage managers have a lot to say about that because they are the people who are setting the tone often and and who have at least some degree of power to advocate for people in their rehearsal spaces. Can you share with us some examples of the kinds of things that came up in the interviews about the way stage managers are trying to shift the norms in theater around some of these conversations? Yeah, there's a couple ways. One stage manager I talked to has some training in intimacy coordination. And this is another area of theater that is really taking off, which is, you know, an intimacy coordinator is someone who takes training to to help performers and anyone in the rehearsal room navigate sensitive things. What you know, because plays often depict very troubling things, sexual assault, or even even other kinds of intimacy that's lovely and romantic, but that the actors don't necessarily want to be truly doing some of those things. So intimacy coordinator is about helping actors find ways for people to move through that those kinds of things safely. Right. I mean, we for, there's long been like combat coordinators, right, yeah. that you wouldn't have two people sword fighting on stage without choreographing very carefully what that looks like. And yet this is a relatively new thing to be thinking, wow, it's also we need to make our actors feel safe to be kissing or getting naked or yeah. whatever it may be. Exactly. In, a, in my understanding, and though I'm not an expert, is that intimacy coordination actually has kind of came out of stage combat. Uh, you know, that there's a, that that those two things are actually connected in terms of how they're carried out. So so, you know, and I think stage managers are more and more going to be called upon in certain kinds of, you know, companies and situations to either enforce or, you know, have some of that training. So so that's certainly one thing The another person I spoke to has just said that she finds herself doing a lot of work where, though she is a white woman, she is in rehearsal rooms with people of color, often, you know, sometimes with directors of color, sometimes not. And so she is very aware that she has some power to be able to maybe help actors out if they find themselves in uncomfortable situations or finding that they're having to deal with some pushback that they don't want to have to handle on their own, that she lets people know that they can always shoot her a text and she'll she'll suggest a break or she'll, you know, find some non-obvious way to intervene in that moment. So, you know, there's there's been some examples of things like that. And there was a piece in HowlRound, which is a newsletter for for topics in theater. And Narda Alcorn and Lisa Porter, who have a book on stage management, they also have a post about anti-racist strategies in the rehearsal room that stage managers can adopt. And it's it's a really useful piece, I think. I, I looked at it after I'd been talking to some of these stage managers and and uh, some of the things that the people I've talked to have said really, you know, maybe they maybe they've read it or maybe it's just something that's in the air for people who are, you know, wanting to to participate. As part of the ICS Faculty Fellowship, we also want people to be engaging with the community to make sure that that research is connecting with folks who can use it and ideally that that research be informed in turn by those conversations. Talk to us about what you're doing as part of your community engagement as this with this project. Yes, it's still in the planning stages, but my, my hope is to have a, an online gathering of some sort where I can partner hopefully with one or more of the stage managers I've talked to already to have a, a online forum where I can share some of the preliminary research, but mostly also hear in a more collective forum from stage managers about what they're 
what are the issues related to labor that they that they feel can be changed and that they want changed? I think, you know, there's the union. So there's things that happen in the union that that might take a little bit more coordination and planning. But I think there's also maybe small things that a director or a, a company can do to make their stage managers feel supported and, and actually support them in, in ways that will just make their lives better, make them want to continue doing this work. And, and you know, burnout is such a, a theme in the work and also obviously in our culture at large right now. So I think really finding ways to support all the people who are working on theater, you know, to prevent some of that, the worst of that burnout. Well, and particularly as you've talked about, right, the, you know, since stage managers are also comparatively isolated, you know, relative to like theaters have or a theater will have many actors, right, who might talk with each other about labor conditions or, you know, their work with a particular director. If a stage manager is the only one, it's harder to do that. So do you see this as an opportunity to sort of help stage managers find other stage managers and to compare best practices? I think it could be. Yeah. I mean, they have there are some resources out there because I've asked them, like, how do they, you know, if they belong to organizations and there is a stage managers association that some people belong to, some people don't. But I think the the most, you know, it seems like the the ways that stage managers connect with each other, there's some Facebook groups, so there's some other online forums, but, you know, and then there's just their own network. So it's not that I think I'm necessarily creating that, but I think it might be something that it would be nice to be able to connect people if we're online together, at least, because, you know, so much of I think a lot of the stage management communities are also regional. And so I am talking to people from a number of different cities. And and there's so many themes between people who are who probably won't know each other because they're not in the same creative circles. Right. And so I do hope that this can foster some cross geographical connections at the very least and, and maybe find some commonalities so that they're so that if people find solutions and best practices in their own communities say they they something starts to happen in Minneapolis it'd be great if that that could also start happening in Seattle and Washington at Washington DC and you know so yeah that that would be a a goal I know that you've talked elsewhere about some of the suggestions for labor practices to make to reduce the burnout and to maybe more equitably distribute some of the work. Can you name out some of those things that are in the air as possibilities for adjusting the stage management role to make that more humane? One thing that I I have talked about, at least with one or two stage managers, is just being able to have build-in understudies. Understudies is not really the right word because in many places, if you have a stage management team, there is probably some kind of process by which an assistant stage manager could, in an emergency situation, fill in. But I think there's so many people working in companies where that's not built in. And and kind of ironically, as one person put it, there's there's not enough stage managers, but somehow there's also not enough work. And so it's this weird kind of paradox And so one of, you know, some suggestions that people have is just having an on-call list for here are some capable stage managers for if if your stage manager knows they need to be gone for this day or they get COVID and they can't come in, here's someone who can come into rehearsal and make sure that things are continuing to run until that person can come back. 
you know, particularly I think one stage manager I talked to had a sense that there were all these plans being developed for understudies and what would we do if an actor falls sick, but there was not actually a plan for if the stage manager did. And, um, you know, I think just to, to consider the fact that that stage manager is as important as someone who's on stage in a lot of ways. And so, so those are some things, you know, the other thing is, and I guess this is more union focused is that my understanding from talking to folks is that stage managers don't get paid for some of the work that they do. They don't get paid for production meetings and they don't get pay, paid for like the time that they spend doing paperwork after a rehearsal. Or there are certain situations in which they can, but they find that it's, you know, maybe the producer is like, why did you need to spend two hours after rehearsal doing your work? And I, I think they just want to be compensated for the work that they're that they're putting into the show. You know, when thinking about kind of theater, it is it reflects our society, right? Both the best and the worst bits of it. It, it holds a mirror up to the way things are, but it also can lead us to think about things in a new way. How do you see, you know, your work contributing to the public good in theater and performance? Well, the one thing I wanted to do is to, I hope at some degree, make things better for stage managers, but also to let stage managers recognize themselves in the history of theater, let them recognize their value and not just that they know it, but that, uh, you know, other people might recognize it too. You know, I think... There's also a way that stage managers actually do so much for particular shows, you know, because stage managers are there not only when a play has already been written and they're doing a, you know, a play from the 50s, but they're also there in the rehearsal room for new play development. So I think there's this way that they they are always there. People don't, you know, before other kinds of tech people are ever in the room, there's usually a stage manager and that they are an integral part of theater history and they're an integral part of making like literally in the sense of crafting and making that theater happen. And so I think there is kind of a moment in theater studies right now. So I have a Esther Kim Lee wrote a book about yellow face. It's called made up Asians. And she's really looking at yellow face, not just as a kind of conceptual thing that happens, but as you know, there are makeup artists who learned to draw on the eyes and there's manuals that describe how to do it. You know, so I, I guess I think about this work potentially as having the effect of saying, well, stage managers have a material effect on how theater is actually crafted. And we usually don't see what that is. You know, we can't see it as clearly as you can see makeup or a costume, but it is there. So I, I do want that to be part of the conversation, too, because stage managers know what they do. <laughs> but but it's hard for people to discern what that is from the audience. As a last question, any recommendations or advice for listeners? And I'm especially thinking about younger listeners, college students, maybe, who maybe are fascinated by theater and performance. But, you know, what that turns into, whether that's academic study or being a performer or just being an audience member, any advice for them or ways you'd encourage them to engage with theater and performance issues? Well, I mean, I think it's always it's always good to know about how the how this how the sausage is made, <laughs> I guess, is the, the expression. But but also, you know, there are really practical if people really find themselves interested in theater and maybe want to know more how about how it works, especially if you're a college student, 
you can you can volunteer to work backstage at a show. I mean, it's a lot of work, and but maybe that's instructive, right? To be able to understand how much dedication it takes that you you give up your entire weekends and you you know to like sit backstage and and hand things to people or sweep a stage, or you know, volun people can volunteer in other ways like ushering or just getting involved with a company. I think that I don't want to encourage necessarily you know, there's this fine line between volunteering and then kind of falling into unpaid labor that should be paid. So I want to pay attention to that. And at the same time, understand that it's the reality that most theaters in our company are not for profit and that they rely on volunteers, donors, and all kinds of talents that people have. And so I think one of the best ways to understand that more is to be involved on some level. And you know, that might not be obvious, but just reaching out to someone as easy as, you know, looking, you know, emailing someone or tweeting someone. <laughs> well, and just as a plug, and I wonder if you have anything to add about this, is in addition to kind of like university-sponsored theater, like community theaters are an amazing place where you don't have to, you know, that there's lots of opportunities to get involved. They're always yeah. looking for people, whether it's, you know, auditioning for something or just helping out with all of the backstage work. Absolutely. You know, you can you can be the person who is taking tickets or selling concessions. And once you're there, people really want to welcome you. It's not, you know, it would be a rare case that your, you know, your willingness to be part of the the whole organization would be unwelcome. Thanks so much for joining me today, Angie. It's been great talking with you. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Listeners can keep up with ICS by following us on Twitter and Instagram at ICSBGSU and on our Facebook page. You can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. For more information or to propose a guest for a future episode, you can visit us at bgsu.edu forward slash BG ideas. Sound engineering for this episode was provided by Marco Mendoza with editing by Brendan Akatora. Research for this episode was done by Iswat Damiola Jinad and Joe Elliott.